Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Hi, I hope everybody's feeling pretty good today. I know I am. Today I want to talk about ways to let other people go on and move on with their life to what is their chapter next. Chapter next is important for us as caregivers and for our people with diagnosis. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because one of the things about Alzheimer's that's so hard for families and friends to adjust to is the singular path that it takes. The person that they that they love is on this journey that's going to take them farther and farther away from the life that they have created with you and from the ways they've always communicated and shared. And there are going to be glimmers of that person and days that they remember who you are and days that they don't. But they're going to have a lot of days that are are going to not be filled with familiar experiences. There's a progression, of course. And for those of us who surround that person and we work hard to find ways to keep them connected, it's difficult and it becomes increasingly difficult as they get further and further along. And it, I hope is not too difficult to for you to work with that person in a positive way to make sure you maintain their attention and their focus so that they can be the best they can be. But there is a threshold at every stage, my friends, when that person is no longer able to manage certain aspects of the the focus the way they've always done it and they can no longer draw on it anymore. This causes sadness. It's sorrow. It's anxiousness. It's depression sometimes. And we mourn each loss with these thresholds. We do. It's part of the sort of reorientation process that the the person that, that is caring, the family member, the friend, who's caring for the person with memory loss has to make to allow you and them to let go of their own experiences and hopefully be able to enable them to see what is going to be 
in the future, that chapter next, and and keep from driving them into like a paralyzing grief state. Our goal isn't to make the whole journey sad. Nobody ever, you know, said, well, let's just be sad about this. Let's just be down. But the truth of the matter is we grieve the loss of the person that we've known. Each each stage that they progress, we're losing a little bit of them. How do we process that? How do we process that sadness, that loss? How do we let go of it? You know, one of the ways I think is, you know, trying not to compare how they were to how they used to be, how they're managing their life now to how they used to manage. You know, they leave these comparisons behind in their day-to-day functioning every single day, you know, responding to the moment and how things feel. And most often they have a very straightforward, laser-focused approach to each situation that happens every single day. And in some ways they feel more detached or matter-of-fact about what's happening to them And without a doubt, that affects the caregiver. It's upsetting. It's upsetting when when people, you know, you go through these enormously emotional, financial, and physical times, these stresses when you're trying to provide care for the person you love who has memory loss and to have that person not respond with gratitude can be hard, but then to be ignored and not recognized can be absolutely maddening. (laughs) And as a caregiver, you have to let go of yet one more expectation of being appreciated or being recognized as a connected person or a primary person to that person with the memory loss. That hurts. That hurts. You know, people think to themselves, after all I have done, (laughs) after all the years that we've been together, after everything we've been through together, You can't say hello and say my name. You can't stop as you are walking by and acknowledging me. These are kind of the things that that families and, and friends say. And they wonder, is that person ignoring me on purpose? The biggest question I get are, are they being selfish and manipulative? One minute they seem to be very with the program and the next minute they're as disconnected as... You know, a kite that gets away from a kid. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. It's some of the biggest questions that I get. And really, it's none of these things, right? 
in this in the perspective of the person that has the diagnosis it it's just that their attention as a person that has memory loss is now sort of riveted to a moment to moment existence and they can't access the memory experiences of you know, when they were so thoughtful or or those things that you're trying to remember and saying all the things that we've done together, why can't they remember them, right? They can't remember all the, the times that they should be grateful. You know, they would they would be grateful if they could remember that, but it's in the deepest part of their heart. It's in the deep recesses of their brains where they are grateful. And they probably can't tell you that, though, unless they're having a lucid moment, right? And that that moment could be occupied with asking about their situation and and how you perceive their memory loss being exhibited and and you know, just trying to to glean some insights from you. So I ask people all the time to think about the person that they love, that they're caring for, as if they don't have the disease, just for a minute, and try to consider what that person might say to them if they could see the situation as a whole and talk to them about it. And a lot of times, you know, when I've asked people, to do that, just take, just try that exercise for a second. I get responses like, yeah, they would say I'm probably doing too much for them. They're sorry they're putting me through this. Um, thank you. Um, they, they want me to take care of myself. You know, they're not being selfish then. And very, very rarely do we get one you know, where somebody would say, oh, I think they'd say I should be doing more. <laughs> that, that doesn't really happen. More often we get the lucid moment of thank you for caring for me and I hope I'm not a burden. That, I think, is in the mind of a person with a diagnosis more than anything else. I think that's the biggest thing that they worry about. So if we can even remotely stay objective, my friends, and realize that the person with memory loss can't help it and that they're unable to add up all the things that you're doing for them throughout the day and say thank you, you know, it it shifts the focus from performing good deeds, you know, for that that personal accolade for that personal thing that 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 you're doing and changing it to doing it just because it's the right thing to do you know i i'm trying to help you understand that don't focus so much on what you think you need to be appreciated for know that what you're doing is probably appreciated that that person's mind isn't working well 
and they are struggling with with being able to be an intellectual thinker that can automatically you know validate what you've been doing for them it it just doesn't work that way it just doesn't work that way when they've got the short term memory loss they're struggling just to get through a day let alone thinking about what your day is like I mean, that's really the the truth of the matter, right? And if you can move kind of beyond the sentiment and the emotion to maybe a stronger, more solid sense of being in alignment and truly present with that person and that you're doing what you're doing out of love and compassion you will feel better about your role. Because if we as caregivers can bring our awareness, our in-the-moment thoughts to our time with the, the, the person with the diagnosis, it will lighten the sense of burden not only for what they're thinking but for you. If you can let go, if you can let go and try to just be in the moment. You know, a lot of times people feel exhausted and they can feel very frail from a physical standpoint, right? And when when you as a caregiver still need that constant reassurance and stimulus and direction, you know, you wear each other out. When we, when we get that clinginess, when we get that shadowing, um, them following you everywhere in the house and, and not managing well if that person's out of sight, you and them can become very anxious. Why are you anxious? Well, I think it's kind of, you know, I don't mean this to sound trivial, but it's kind of a sign of love. You know, it's a it's a normal stage to the illness. And even though it's clear that that you love each other, we don't feel like sometimes as caregivers that the proof is in the pudding of that person having love for you. I, I hear this all the time. I get angry caregivers who say, there's no intimacy left. I'm just about done. He's angry all the time. Um, she doesn't seem to care what I think. She barely acknowledges me when when they come into a room, right? These kinds of things happen all the time. It does. And when somebody has memory loss, they look to the active ego force of the one closest to them. Because their feeling is this person makes sense. <laughs> so I'm going to go 
where they go and do whatever they do because they know what they're doing. They want to follow you around, even if it's impersonal, because they feel like you're in control for both of them. It's a displacement of that person's own direct sense of self, right? And it's super normal. They need to be in the physical proximity of where you are to understand what's going on. And and that's and that's tough because you want to leave, you want to leave the house, you want to you want to go someplace else, you want a little quiet time, you want to take a shower or something like that. But but that person just can't comprehend because of the short-term memory loss being non-existent that if you're just around the corner and they can't see you then you must not be there it's a it's a weird thing but it, it it's kind of like a child if they're yelling for mom and they they can't see you so they get very very nervous how do we let go of these kinds of things how do we get them to move forward how do we how do we push this along so that everybody can live peacefully well that is a $64,000 question and i think it comes with a huge amount of encouragement um to to being able maybe to to put them in a place where they can be with other people like at a daycare or some kind of respite or something so they can transfer uh, this behavior that they have of shadowing and things like that to someone else. Um, whether it's, you know, sitting near somebody else or for a period of time or eating lunch with somebody else for a period of time or dealing with a staff member at maybe a daycare or something like that. They follow that person. You can transfer that sometimes if it gets too sticky, if it gets too clingy. We need to do that. We need to find a little respite. We need to find a place that will um, provide, you know, like bus rides with a group of people with a diagnosis or something like that. It, because it it just... We have to figure out a way to sort of cut the umbilical cord, to to let go, to let them feel connected to other people and figure out when it's a good time to attract their focus to somebody else so that, you know, you're not fatigued or nobody else is fatigued and you're not frustrated and that way they can they can continue to respond to you as their person that is very special and and make them feel like super happy when they actually do see you but they can enjoy being with other people and enjoy other activities and participate in things um that will help them stay content during the day if you can if you can find things like that it brings them back around to just being excited to see you 
when the time comes, but they've spent a day in meaningful engagement and joy, dancing, having lunch, doing art projects and things like that, so that you have the ability to focus your attention someplace else, right, and give them sort of a creative structure or atmosphere that they can be in where they can be stimulated, you know, at the same time when you're relaxing. (laughs) I mean, that's the way, that's what you have to do, right? Um, You have to help them to build and rebuild, actually, an independent life of their own. And it can be a little bit of a struggle. It can be hard, you know, if if one person's always running the show. Um, there's one person that wants to sustain the life that they've always had together while the other person is starting to get sick themselves because they're a caregiver and they're not taking care of themselves. And they're taking on the role of caring and advocacy and And at a certain point, they have to look ahead and begin practicing the life that they're going to need to create for themselves as this partnership continues to change. I hate to say that, but but you do. You have to figure that out. You have to say to yourself, all right, this is going to start changing. How can we do this in a healthy manner? How can we do it so that person isn't scared and feeling left out? How can I put just a little bit of space between me and them so that I can breathe? And then hopefully the caregiver can start drawing, you know, on the extended feelers that they have for that person and sort of rewire their nervous system and tune them into themselves and make them free to move in a direction that makes sense to them because their preferences are being meet, met, they're, they're getting advice or, or they're being engaged in some way that they're being influenced by other people. And, you know, it can be unnerving for the person with the diagnosis, but for you, it's, it's liberating it can be liberating. <laughs> you know, I, I've seen so many families that navigate this. You know, everybody loves everybody solidly. They're very constant and true and, and they and they they are just an amazingly loving family and, and it's just awesome to witness that, right? And it's a test testament really to the to the strength and the love that everybody has. But sometimes that gets splintered. And, you know, you can have humor and appreciation at one moment and anger and bitterness at the next. And, and you know, anticipation creates stress and irritability takes over and, you know, all of a sudden grief kicks in, this is where we get off track. It it can be really, really hard. And I want you to try to find a way 
to find resources to be able to create that space, that that way of letting go a little bit and finding that chapter next for each of you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I'm going to continue this conversation about how do we how do we help that person move along the path and we move along the path so neither of us are losing our minds. We'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, we're talking about ways to let go, let others go, and... Help yourself find what's coming next in your life. What's the next chapter? How do we move through this journey without it being devastatingly bitter and angry and so forth? So in order to stay functioning, the way I was talking about in the first half of this show, there has to be permission with these two people, whoever the caregiver and the person with the diagnosis is, to express what is difficult and to also feel supported by others even when opinions differ because they do. We don't all think alike, right? And if everyone is trying as hard as they can, you know, This is uncharted territory for us. We're trying to figure out what we can do. It's a super vulnerable place to be. If you say what's on your mind, you don't want that person to take it wholeheartedly and think you don't care or you're leaving them or whatever it is. Or the person with the diagnosis doesn't want people to think, you know, that they're going down a rabbit hole super duper fast or anything like that. So you you have to be vulnerable to be able to say what's on your mind, to be able to say, I need you to not cling to me. I need to be able to take you to, you know, a daycare program or something like that. I need to do what I need to do. And they need to be able to say, I don't want you to leave me. 
I don't feel like I can make friends there. I'm worried about it. And then you work through it with them, right? And there is a lot of times spoken or even unspoken agreement that an individual in this scenario can't come on too strong and heavy with their own emotions or their own agenda. You know, it, it needs to be respectful to where the person is in the process for both of you. You know, I see families doing this over and over and over again. Um, the functioning families far outnumber the ones challenged by a bunch of old luggage, right? A bunch of old baggage in the situation. There's a lot more loving partners, loving children, you know, sort of pained by doing this heroic job of advocating and supporting and navigating this process with their with their loved one, right? But sometimes we have consternation and we have confusion and we have people that say this has changed too quickly. I don't like it. The other person might say, you know, I want to share my life with this person, even if they're alive and and incapacitated and they think that they should stay with that person forever and ever. But the other person might say, hey, you know what? I could cope better and be more okay if you knew that I ultimately just wanted you to be okay, that I that I want you to move on with somebody else if I die suddenly. Um, you know, you can you you have mourned me through this whole scenario, through this whole journey, and when it's over, I want you to be open to other relationships if another one came along. These are real conversations. This is what I'm talking about. Being able to sit with that person and talk to them and say what you really need to say and do what you really need to do. You have to be vulnerable. You have to open yourself up to these kinds of things. You don't want that person to think, you know, that they're leaving you. But on the other hand, they may say, go on and do something else. I see it all the time. Go love somebody else. It's okay. You know, we can't always be available to our person. We can't always work things out. We want to. It matters if they're happy or not. Um, it matters to us in a big way if they are content. But we, we, we want always to deal with this and navigate with respect and care about that person's well-being. And, and when, we, when we think about it that way, you can think about it like as a moment of letting go of judgments that can come up with this illness, you know? Because of the loving relationships people have with each other, the 
when the person with dementia comes to a social setting, you know, like a daycare program like I was talking about, they might seek out somebody else. They could be attracted to somebody else. It happens all the time in care communities. It leaves the caregiver, the caregiver partner, with some new dynamics to deal with. It behooves us to have these conversations. It would help heavily if people could be honest about what they are feeling. I have said to some of the people in my support groups before that have a loved one in a long-term care facility that they're still alive. They're still living. When you have somebody in a community that doesn't know you, that doesn't talk, that doesn't communicate in any way and hasn't for many years, this may be an unpopular statement, but I think it's okay to move on with your life, to find another companion. The chances are they will. If they are an outgoing person, if they are an emotional person, or if they are a very sexual or giving person, I would say probably seven out of ten times people in communities connect with somebody else. And you say, how in the hell does that happen? Right? Like, they haven't shown me any intimacy. They haven't shown anything to me in all these years on this journey and they get into a community and suddenly they get into a loving and sometimes sexual relationship with people they just met. Well, it happens. It happens. We have a lot of challenging times with with various dementias. We have... We have so many challenges, and how do we deal with those? How do we let go of that person and that personality that that person had when the stages are moving past mid-stage? And we've changed ourselves. We've changed ourselves. We have to adjust to a new person that we are. We are a person that now has no real intellectual narrative around any conversation. We're basically on our own. We've become almost like a caregiver who's been brought into the home that doesn't even know the person. We used to have a relationship with this person that now no longer exists. They have become somebody different, and we think we've stayed the same, but we really haven't. We really haven't. It's sort of an altered sense of pain. It's, it's, a, it's a different mindset. So... Where do we let go there? Where do we adapt a new path? Well, 
this is where you might need to to utilize a care community. You might need to utilize a caregiver coming into your home or that daycare community I was talking about and do some things for yourself. Take a trip. Go see family. Go to a beach with a friend. Go get coffee at Starbucks if you need to. Go get a massage. Do something different. Learn a new language. Do something that can really demonstrate to you that you have the ability to move forward and try to live in a different way. It isn't like we have to deal with just a sudden loss, right? We have to grapple with the reality of the impact of their life and then move on to what is next for both of you. And there's a time in the disease process, a period of time when that person remains in the physical present reality that you have, but not in the same way they used to. With every family that's unique, if you are the only person basically that is caring for that person, you're the primary caregiver for the entire course of the, of the illness, the concern of any professional, me, a doctor, anybody that you come in contact with, a social worker, is always going to be what kind of support are you getting? And is it from family members, friends, religious affiliations, support groups? Are you utilizing those respite support services? Because the length of time involved in the course of this disease and the global changes that take place are what worries me always about the impact on the caregiver. What are you doing for yourself to maintain a balance so that you're able to meet all those mounting tasks that you have to care for somebody day to day? How do you feed your need to have conversations, to be spontaneous, and to feel connected, to hope and grow and live your life and enjoy the blessings that you have? And not just every single day, it's trials and challenges. When everything around you says, I'm in a declining place and state and I have to find closure. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. And the problem is, is in the process of providing all this wonderful care that you've given, (laughs) caregivers 
often sacrifice themselves, and they die first. Caregivers suffer more depression. They become more ill. And due to the fact that they're totally immersed in the situation they are in, they often don't recognize when changes to their own well-being are are being compromised because they're so focused on the person that they're caring for. So how do you adjust your energy? How do you plan for a chronic situation? How do you draw from your own reserves? How is this changed when you can't fix it, whatever's going on? And if it's going to go on for years and years and years, what do you need to do to stay in balance? To still be there providing care a year from now or five years from now or ten years from now? How do you protect your nervous system, your immune system? How do you nourish yourself? How do I stay fit during this time? And more importantly, what are what are your dreams? What are your hopes? What would you want to do if this wasn't your situation? Is there any piece that you could incorporate that would help you to not feel victimized by this journey you're on? I mean, those are real questions you need to think about. You have to figure out what's your chapter next, every threshold, every stage that they are in. And one aspect in the progression of this illness is that caregivers, they always experience that that person needs your support, your oversight, right? Some phases of the illness don't need your engagement every moment. You know, you can sneak in a cat nap, impossible. Um, you You can be engaged in doing some gardening or something like that. Um, sitting in a recliner or on your front porch swing or whatever it takes, right? Um, because they now have passed the, the phase of wandering away. They're not in pain. They're not asking for something. They're peaceful. And some moments you can allow yourself to turn into yourself again. A person who's not in grief at the person's passing because they're still with you. But... But to have a type of companionship that they need now, which allows you to look to the future and test what's going to lie ahead for you. You need to ask yourself, you know, what will my life look like when I'm not doing this? And this is a process of rehearsing all the sadness, the losses, the scariness about the illness and being able to get to a place that you're on solid ground emotionally. I think this is the value in having a plan of some type. You know, it can help you stay present in what you're doing, but it also helps you look beyond the here and now. And, you know, try to see what your life, when you have independence again, is going to look like. And, you know, part of the process is 
looking for new activities, a place where it would be nice to not have the stress that you have now. You know, you love, you love your person with a diagnosis, but can you start envisioning them taking their next step away from home, moving to a new place, a care community of some type? As you look at that, there's a shift in, in caregiving. And you have to notice that when your person's moving so far inward that it leaves you feeling like you're clearly in a different place and a relationship to them, that's when the space allows you to start looking ahead. That space allows you to start saying, what do I need? And all those questions that I was asking about how do I move forward? We put an enormous amount of effort and time into thinking about, you know, the respite, the daycare, the care community. But I very seldom meet care partners who look at what they're going to do next. What are their plans? What are their hopes and dreams? You may say, well, I married that person till death do us part. But again, you don't need to be a martyr. You need to take care of yourself and realize that you are still a viable person with hopes and dreams and love to share. And I want you to ask yourself the, the questions I rattled off just a minute ago and say to yourself, have I explored what I need? Have, am, am I in touch with myself? Do I know what I need to be successful? I hope you really take this strongly today and think about moving forward, the letting go of the way things were, the planning for the future, and it doesn't have to be all about the person with a diagnosis, okay? Because you're still here. And if somebody hasn't told you today, you are important, you are awesome, you are compassionate, you are loving, and you're amazing. And I love you. I will see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.